The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. Good morning, Fountain of Life. Good morning. It is uh, wonderful to share this time with you to look at, consider God's Word together. So we're going to be in Revelation chapter 2, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 12 to 17. Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 to 17, we're working through Jesus' uh, letters to these seven churches, hearing his word for us therein. Uh, So Revelation 2, verses 12 to 17. Let's hear the words of our Lord. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful that you have communicated and you continue to communicate to us through your word. Lord, we confess how much we need you and we need your help. Lord, you know the burdens of our hearts, our concerns, our doubts, our pains, our fears. Lord, we pray that you would minister to us and comfort us as we hear your word. We also pray, Lord, that you would uh, cut our hearts with your truth. Help us to have submissive minds and submissive hearts to listen to you, to believe you. Lord, encourage us where we need encouraging Confront us where we need to be confronted, confronted, and if anyone is listening who does not know you, I pray that you would reveal yourself to that person, even through this message. They would see the beauty and the love of Jesus Christ and trust themselves to him. So have your way with us, Lord. Let your word perform its work as we hear what you have to say. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just last year, a USA Today opinion piece began like this. It read, a sad thing is happening in America. The church is killing itself. Now that's an intriguing start, isn't it? How could it be that the church in America is killing itself? Well, the title tells you. It reads, American churches must reject literalism and admit We got it wrong on gay people. I'll read that again. This is the title and theme of the article. It reads, American churches must reject 
literalism and admit we got it wrong on gay people. Now, before we move forward, I feel compelled to say, I want to be clear, we need to admit many times Christians have disobeyed Jesus and how they have treated gay people. Jesus commands us, doesn't he, to love and treat all people with dignity as all people are made in the image of God. And we should be careful to be obedient in that matter and repent from the heart where we are not. We are always to be loving, gentle, kind, respectful with those whom we disagree. That's what Jesus tells us to do, and we want to be that way. However, the main issue of this article that I'm referring to today is not really the bad behavior of Christians. This article takes issue with the Bible itself. The subtitle of the article reads, Churches will continue hemorrhaging members until we face the truth. And then it says, being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. Now, we need to hear that again. I want, I want you to hear what the article is promoting. It says, churches will fail until they face the truth, the author says. And what's the truth? Here's the truth according to the author of this piece. Being a faithful Christian does not mean accepting everything the Bible teaches. Well, what do you think about that? The reason I, I raise this article is I think it's uh, just one example of what is um, happening all the time. And what is going to happen more and more. This message is going to be something we encounter um, constantly. And so we need to think about this and be ready for how we're going to handle it. I want you to notice three things. First of all, and just, just in the little bit we've seen of what the author has done. Number one, the author no longer receives the Bible as the ultimate authority for what to believe and how to live. We've seen that. Number two, and this is what always happens. The author then replaces the Bible with another authority. You could hear it when he said, we must face the truth. There's another truth now above the Bible or better than the Bible. So he no longer receives the Bible as the ultimate authority. Then he replaces the Bible with another authority. And third, the author then condones a certain kind of sexual practice that he admits the Bible condemns. He condones practice that he admits the Bible condemns. And he does this because the Bible is no longer his authority. He has a new authority. And that new authority gives license for a new lifestyle. He says one can do that and still be a faithful Christian. In fact, he says one must do that if the church is to succeed today. And we need to deal with this, friends. But take heart. He's not the only one to have said these things. In fact, it is not a new argument, as we will see in our text today from Revelation. The argument this author is giving is the, exactly the kind of argument the church in Pergamum was facing 1,900 years ago. Truly, there is nothing new under the sun. So we want to see what the Lord Jesus says to this church as they face the same kind of arguments that we are going to be increasingly facing today. Before we get to our text, though, I want to remind you of three things, three things I want you to see. First of all, if you're listening in, just realize 
Everyone has an authority for what to believe and how to live. Everyone does. We can't help it. Maybe it's self. Maybe it's the culture. For Christians, it's the Bible. The Bible is the authority for us for what to believe and how to live. Second, for everyone, our authority for what, to be, for, for what we believe will always define and form our worship. Everyone has an authority. Everyone worships. Worship is about what you love the most and how you devote yourself to that thing that you love the most. Everyone worships. Again, I don't know what it is necessarily for you. For Christians, we long to worship the Creator God, our Father in heaven, through Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit. So again, first, everyone has an authority for what to believe and how to live. Second, for everyone, our authority for what to believe and how to live will define and form our worship. And third, the issue for this morning, the issue for today, for everyone, the authority that forms our worship will be revealed in our opinions regarding and our practices of our sexuality. This is always how it works. Worship will define our sexuality, and our sexual practice and beliefs reveal who we truly worship. It shows who we worship. So we're continuing our study through the book of Revelation. We're in the third of Jesus' addresses uh, through the Apostle John to these seven churches throughout Asia Minor. And as we've seen, there's a sevenfold pattern that these messages tend to follow. We want to remember what that is right now. Number one, each address from Jesus starts with a declaration of who Jesus is. And this is all important. Who he is means everything, and he's constantly showing that he's greater and better and more glorious than anything that would compete with him, and we need to see him again and again and again. So there's a declaration of who Jesus is. Second, every church hears about the knowledge of Jesus. He has intimate knowledge of who we are and our situation. Third, most of the churches get some encouragement from Jesus. Jesus loves to point out to his people what they're doing that pleases them and encourage them in it. Fourth, most churches get a rebuke from Jesus. This is sobering. He tells them there are some things you desperately need to change. Fifth, all churches receive a calling from Jesus. Jesus says to them, this is what I want you to do to follow me. Sixth, most churches get a consequence from Jesus. This is always connected to the rebuke. This is what will happen if you won't repent, as I'm asking you to do, Jesus says. Seventh, all churches receive a promise from Jesus, a promise for those who conquer. There's great reward, Jesus says, for following him faithfully, no matter the cost, he's worth it. So let's work through those seven things together as we see what Jesus says to the church in Pergamum. Just a little bit of background on the city of Pergamum. Uh, the center of the city, uh, historians say, had this grand hill framed by three massive influential temples. There was a temple to Zeus with this altar uh, shaped like a throne. There was a temple to Asclepios, uh, the snake god of healing. And Pergamum was proud to have one of the first temples devoted to the worship of the Roman emperor. And so it just reminds us of how much idolatry defined community life in these cities of Asia Minor. 
Uh, Commentators tell us that a business guild would often have a patron god, and company gatherings would include sacrifices to that god, and quite often group participation in varieties of sexual activity. This is what it meant sometimes to participate in community life. This is what it meant even to have a job or to have a business. And so you can see and feel the massive pressure that would land upon Christians to capitulate. The culture would be insisting on these three things. Submit to our authority. Participate in our worship. Validate our lifestyle. And history shows us that when Christians refused, there was a cost a painful cost. They could lose their job, or even as this church experienced, you could lose your life. Serious business. So in his kindness, Jesus comes to speak to them, to speak to these Christians facing this pressure to replace the authority of his word, to worship something other than him alone, and to practice a lifestyle that he does not allow. So first of all, the declaration, we see this in verse 12. Jesus says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp, two-edged sword. Each of these declarations of who Jesus is reminds us of the vision John had in chapter 1. Go back and look at that, and you'll see the grandeur, the magnificence of who Jesus is. He's king of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. He is sovereign as the eternal son of God, and he is the the saving king who came, took on human flesh to save us from our sins, rose from the dead in victory, and now sits at the right hand of God and reigns over all the kings of the earth. He is king now, which just reminds us Zeus is not preeminent, Asclepios is not the healer, and the emperor of Rome does not ultimately reign. Jesus does. He is larger and greater and more magnificent than any of these things. And so Jesus is saying, look to me again and remember the one who's worthy of your worship. In Revelation 1.16, I want to remind you of that. We saw this. Revelation 1.16. In his right hand he had held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. Again, this isn't a Polaroid of what Jesus looks like. It's not like when Jesus goes to parties and turns his head, he accidentally decapitates everyone. No, these are symbols that show us the magnificence of who he is. What does it mean that his face is like the sun shining in full strength? He's the radiance of the very glory of God. He's awesome. He's overwhelming. And only he can satisfy our hearts. And what does the sword mean? The Roman world had a whole variety of different swords and different words that represented those swords. Uh, there were some swords that are short swords Roman soldiers would use. There was also this, ru- this word for this sword that came, I-, I think, from the Greeks in the north. And this was a seven-foot-long thing. It took two hands to hold. Uh, if you ever saw the movie Braveheart, right, this is what William Wallace is carrying around. Can you guess what kind of sword it is coming out of Jesus' mouth? It's this seven-foot-long, two-handed one. It's this epic, beastly sword. 
What does that mean? What does it symbolize? Well, to the Roman world, the, the sword was the sign of judging authority. Judging authority. So the sword symbolizes this enforcement of justice by the authority. So, of course, it includes a standard. The sword has the standard. Of course, the standard brings protection and reward for those who keep it. But the standard also brings consequences, the sharp sword of judgment for those who rebel. So what does it mean that, G that the sword is coming out of Jesus' mouth? Well, of course, it means that the sword stands for his very word. His word is the authority by which the King of kings and Lord of lords will judge the world. The sword is everything. It's his very authority. Jesus talked like this during his earthly ministry. Let's remember what he said in Matthew 24, verse 35. These are incredible words. Matthew 24, verse 35. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. That's incredible. Who, who gets to speak like this? Who gets to say... That what I say is so determinative, it is stronger and more enduring than the planet. I mean, if any normal person says that, that's just, that's a clown show. That's ridiculous. But Jesus is the one who predicted his death and his resurrection and accomplished it. He is the eternal son of God. And his words are the sword of the universe. They will last forever, and everything will be accountable to it. Remember these words from Hebrews 4, 12 to 13, about the word of God. Hebrews 4, 12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The sword is the standard. It's the ultimate authority, and the sword is the word of God. And Jesus sees into our hearts and our minds, into what we love, into what we trust. He sees what we truly acknowledge as ultimate authority. He sees what it is we actually worship. We are exposed to him, and we will give an account to him according to his word. And where's his word, friends? We have it. We're hearing it here. It's the Bible. The Bible is the Word of God and the ultimate authority for what to believe and how to live. It is the very sword of Jesus' mouth. This means that being faithful to Him is the same as being faithful to His Word. Being faithful to Him is the same as being faithful to his word. Second thing to see, verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. That's quite a thing to, for Jesus to say about this city. 
Satan's throne is there. It reminds us of those temples, the throne of Zeus, the throne of the emperor. And we see here that idolatry wasn't just of historical interest. These are not just issues of museums of the past. The devil himself is active to deceive people in order to destroy people. And how does he do it? We see this from Genesis 3. We see it throughout the Bible. We see it in Revelation. We see it in our lives. What does he want you to do? He wants you to doubt the goodness of God. He wants you to doubt the truth of God's word and then replace him. Do you see? Change the authority for what you believe. You can't trust God. Worship something else other than God. And then live however you like apart from God. And so Satan deceives people in order to ruin people, and he makes it very hard on God's people. And Jesus says to this church in Pergamum, I know, I know what it's like. I know. And he says to them, all right, I hold you in my hand. I haven't forgotten you. I'm with you. I'm sovereign over what you're going through. I know, I haven't forgotten your situation. I'm so there with you. Trust me, hear me. I know. Beautiful words. Now we hit number three, the encouragement. The encouragement Jesus gives this church again in verse 13. Yet, even though you're in Satan's headquarters, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith. Do you see Jesus' encouragement? To hold fast to his name. Again, this is strange language for us. It's kind of symbolic. How do you hug a name? How do you cling to a name. What does this mean? Well, let's unpack it. The name of God is always representative of the reality of who he is. It's how he communicates the reality of who he is. And of course, his name can be misused. Not everyone using the name of Jesus is saying the same thing about who he is. Some say he's a man with enlightened, spiritual, enlightened spirituality. That's not holding fast to his name. Others say he's just a good teacher. That's not holding fast to his name. Others say, oh, he's only a prophet. That's not holding fast to his name. Some say he's a savior, but not Lord. That's not holding fast to his name. To hold fast to his name is to trust in who Jesus is as described by his word. That's what it means to hold fast to his name, which means that anything, anyone that says anything other than Jesus is the eternal son of God who became human to die for sins and who rose from the dead as God's promised king forever is not holding fast to his name. And so Jesus praises this church, even in this pressure to deny me, you wouldn't. You held fast to the description of who I am according to my word. The second thing he encourages them for is, you did not deny my faith. I'm really enjoying that, that phrase. Jesus calls the Christian faith his faith. You did not deny my faith. What I'm hearing is, the Christian faith belongs to Jesus. In Hebrew it says, he's the author of, of our faith. And part of what this gets at is he has spoken it. He has done it. 
It's about him, and it's according to his word. What this means is we don't get to redefine it. We don't get to improve it or adjust it or adapt it so that the movements of our cultures will be more happy with it. It's not ours. It's his. And we don't invent it or change it. We receive it. And we hold fast to it. And we don't deny it. We don't deny it. And Jesus praises the church for not denying the truth about Jesus, even in the days of Antipas, who got killed for it. He got killed for it, for holding fast to the truth of who Jesus is. Wow. And Jesus calls Antipas my faithful witness. This is the greatest encouragement Jesus can give is to say of you, you're my faithful witness. And here we remember that in a way we follow Jesus' example in this. Remember Revelation 1.5? Revelation 1.5. John says this letter of Revelation is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings on earth. Jesus was the faithful witness. He lived and told the truth. It took him to the cross, but he endured the cross for our sins. He rose from the dead and now reigns. And so in a way, his people are to follow his lead. As he was a faithful witness, so are we to be faithful witnesses to his truth. And we are to faithfully endure tribulation that that may bring, knowing that one day the firstborn of the dead, our Lord Jesus, will give us resurrection, and eternal life with him. So Jesus encourages this church for holding fast to who he is according to his word, despite the cost. But that now takes us to the rebuke in verse 14. Jesus says, I have a few things against you. Can you just imagine the, uh, <laughs> the intensity of that moment? Would, would you like to have Jesus look over to you and say, I have a few things against you. Oh, okay, okay. And here's what he says. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Verse 15, you have some there who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. I want you to think about that just for a moment. Was it behavior alone Jesus is confronting, or was it a certain kind of teaching that led to a certain behavior Jesus is confronting? It's teaching. It's teaching. There's a kind of teaching Jesus hates, and he wants to deal with it in this church. He calls it the teaching of Balaam. What does that mean? Well, that looks back to an account in the book of Numbers Balaam was hired by this pagan king, Balak, to curse the people of Israel. And he couldn't do it. God wouldn't let him. God had bestowed his grace on Israel, and they were his. And so Balaam's curses, they couldn't even come out of his mouth. All that could happen was blessing. But Balaam still found a way to inspire Israel's ruin. He still found a way. And he gave Balak this inspiration Send Moabite ladies in to seduce Israel. 
Let them seduce them into sexual immorality and the worship of other gods. And then Balaam said, even if I can't curse them, they'll bring the curse on themselves. Somehow it always works this way. We deny the authority. We change the worship. And we embrace the practice of a deviant sexuality. And this was the teaching of the Nicolaitans in that church. This was the teaching. They said, you can deny the authority of God's word, change, adjust who you worship just a little bit, Jesus and some idols, and practice a new sexuality, the sexuality of your culture. And the Nicolaitans would say, you can do this and still call yourself a Christian. It's the exact same thing we heard from that article at the beginning, and it's the exact same thing we're going to hear from many voices around us. And Jesus' response to this teaching is, no, you can't. No, you can't deny the authority of my word and call yourself a Christian. No, you can't change who you worship. No, you can't teach the practice of a new sexuality as fine with Jesus. No, you can't. Revelation 2.6, Jesus says, I hate this teaching. It confronts the sword of his mouth. It wants to yank the sword out of his mouth and per, put in a, a, a nerf sword. It, it wants to totally change uh, who Jesus is and what he says. It denies his name. It doesn't hold fast to his faith. Now, some of you might be asking, gosh, why is sexuality so important to Jesus? Why does he call this out? He's going to call it out in this letter. He's going to call it out in next week's letter. Why is it called out so many times in the New Testament? I feel like I need to spend a few minutes on that. Why does the practice of our sexuality matter so much to God and his word? I want to give you two reasons today. Number one, sexuality matters because of God's design for our good. Sexuality matters because of God's design for our good. The Bible tells us God made humans, male and female, in his image. Male and female are equal in value, different in many ways, so as to complement and bless one another. And that's God's design. Generally speaking, the best thing for male and female is for them to unite in marriage. Marriage is the foundation of human society, one man with one woman in lifelong covenant together. Marriage unites a husband and a wife as one flesh for their joy, for their satisfaction. And this is the intended context for sex. Sex is the physical act of that marital union. Sex is covenantal. It's the body making a promise to know and to be known, to love and to be loved faithfully until death. And sex, obviously, our culture forgets, but let's remind them, sex obviously will often lead to children. And that works out well, according to God's design, because the institution of marriage is the best place for children. To have a faithful mom and a dad who provide love, safety, education, character formation, and all the rest. This is God's design for our good. It's God's design. 
We know, don't we? In a sinful world, these things are often broken. We know. I know. We all wear the scars of this somehow. We all do. Fathers have failed. Marriages have been broken. Some of us are criminals in that. Some of us are victims in that. Some of us are both. It's painful. It's difficult. We know that. But it remains God's design for our good. And Jesus, our Lord, vindicated this in Matthew 19. Look at Matthew 19, verses 4 to 6. Jesus said, Have you not read... What's Jesus referring to? God's word. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. The word of God tells us this is God's design for our good. That's the first reason it's so important. But second, sexuality matters because it's God's design that our sexual practice display the reality of our worship. Not only does our worship form our sexuality, our sexuality displays the reality of our worship. As you read throughout the Old Testament, you're going to see God will call himself the husband. And he will call his people the wife. And that's why idolatry, the worship of other gods, is so often called by the prophets spiritual adultery. It's adultery. It's a betrayal. Because in adultery, we give a certain kind of devotion that belongs to only one to another. And so when we look to anything other than God to be God to us, whether it's money or status or sex or family or politics or pop culture or anything other than God Himself, we are spiritually adulterous. So we see the bitterness, the ugliness of our sin. And this is me. I have been a spiritual adulterer. Thank God for the gospel where Jesus saves us from this. He took the penalty we deserve for our betrayal of our God. He rose from the dead and he reigns. And one day we will be with him. All who trust in him will be with him forever in the new world he creates. And you know how Revelation itself talks about this? Look at Revelation 19.9. Revelation 19.9. Write this. Blessed are those who are invited to what? The marriage supper of the Lamb. Friends, heaven is our honeymoon. It's when our king who died for us, the Lamb, welcomes us into his presence. And Jesus, our faithful husband, will receive the church, his devoted bride. Christians who know the gospel like this want to honor the gospel and how they live in every way, including their sexuality. When Christians worship Jesus according to the authority of his word, they honor and glorify who Jesus is to them in the way they understand and practice their sexuality. I want you to see this from 1 Thessalonians 4. 
Look at and listen to 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 1. Finally then, brothers and sisters, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and please God just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is God's will. Verse 4. That each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who, what? Do not know God. Do you see their idolatry forms their sexuality? And our sexuality is to glorify our worship. Verse 6. That no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. See, it's against God's design. Because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Verse 7. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. It's so important. Our worship defines our sexuality. Our sexuality displays who we truly worship. Now, we all have desires, don't we, and inclinations that contradict God's design in his word. God help me, what would my life be like if I always went with every desire that I had? So we know the cross we bear And for some, it is far more difficult than for others in this area of life. But to be a Christian is to so be thrilled by the love of God for us in Jesus Christ and the forgiveness offered us through the gospel and to have the power of his spirit with us that we are willing, as difficult as it might be, to submit ourselves and our desires to him according to his word. And that shows the reality of our worship to him and him alone. So, Jesus then gives the calling in verse 16. It's really simple, two words. Therefore, repent. Therefore, repent. Do you know what it means to repent? I mean, I I wanna be like a prophet and yell it, repent, but I'd be yelling at myself. Do you know what it means to repent? It's it's really not about the volume of anyone's voice. To repent is to realize you're going the wrong way. And to turn and go the other way. And to turn and go the way towards submission to the Lord Jesus. Go towards him. Submit to him. And so we've got a lot of repenting to do, don't we? I mean, first of all, in a way, the church needs to get its house in order. When we think about issues of sexuality, there's things our culture might be yelling at us about, and we think, whoa, that's crazy, that's awful, and we say that's wrong and it's unbiblical. But I wonder, have we been dealing with our own lust problem? It's just as rebellious. Have have we been dealing with the pornography use in our lives, or the emotional infidelity that exists even in our marriages. We need to 
each in some way, don't we? Repent and come to Jesus, sinners saved by the grace of God, to come together supporting one another in ways we have desires that are contra God's word and helping one another to be monogamous, faithfully monogamous while married, glorifying the union of Jesus Christ and his church. Or celibate while single, glorifying the faithfulness of Jesus as we remain faithful in waiting for his return. In either case, equally, our repentance is meant to lead to the glory of God and Jesus Christ and what he's done. Let's repent individually, personally, communally in these things. And then also, in context of this passage, we need to repent in that we don't leave room in the church for any teaching or behavior that wants to say something like, you don't need to obey God's word to be a faithful Christian. That's wrong. That's false. It doesn't belong in the church of Jesus Christ. The Bible is our authority for what we believe and how we live, period. And that we want to form our worship. And then we want to live out our sexuality in honor of the worship of the one who has saved us and who will come back for us. So let's repent. Let's repent. Verse six, or number six, the consequence. Look at verse 16. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Wow. There's somehow a coming of Jesus. I think this is before the second coming, although the second coming will be the ultimate fulfillment of this. There's somehow a visit from Jesus Christ threatened to this local church in the sense that he will bring discipline upon these teachers with the sword of his mouth. And I I honestly don't know exactly what that looks like. But I do know this. Jesus is telling us that in some cases we'll have to pick our sword. We'll have to pick our sword. Here's what I mean. The church in Pergamum either had to face the sword of their culture, bringing tribulation on them when they wouldn't join in idolatry, Or they could say, you know, we'll submit to that sword to make life a little easier. But then they have to face the sword of the Lord. And so we're going to be faced with this choice. It really comes down to this. What's your authority for what you believe and how to live? Not just what you'd say, but your actual authority. And does that authority form your worship of the true God? How are you living in the light of that? Which sword will you face? Which cost will you pay? There will be a cost to serve Christ. There will be a cost to compromise. There's good heart and bad heart, isn't there? I mean, part of what Revelation is telling us is sometimes life is just hard. Tribulation is normal. I keep looking for this third path where it's all easy all the time trying to find it. It's not there. Sometimes it's just hard, and so we're left with the choice of, do I want faithful hard, good hard, or rebellious hard? And I think once we see it that way, we realize, you know what? There is a cost for being faithful to Jesus. I don't know what it'll look like, but there will be one. 
And that'll be hard, but it'll be good hard. We'll have Christ himself. We'll have the knowledge of his promises. We'll have the purity of who he is. I've tasted a little bit of bad hard before. Go along with whatever the culture's pulling you to. And oh, you fit in and you get praised and you get included, but you know you're disconnected from the Lord himself. And at some point, he's going to come after us with the sword of his mouth. Who will you serve? And what is the price you'll pay for that choice? This takes us to the promise, verse 17. The promise. I love these words. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I'll give some of the hidden manna, and I'll give him a white stone with a new name on it. <laughs> At first we're like, what? Thank you. Thank you for the reward of invisible bread and of white rock. Well, obviously, these things, like most things in Revelation, are deeply symbolic. So what's manna all about? We remember the story of the people of Israel, right? They're saved out of Egypt, and they're taken into the wilderness, and there's not a lot of food or water in the wilderness. And many times they think, how are we going to make it? And God, miraculously there, in a place of no resources, gives them manna. It's like honey bread. I think the original Hebrew says Krispy Kreme. Um, healthy Krispy Kreme. I jest, but the idea, right, is they were so lavishly, miraculously fed by the Lord in a place of dryness. And do you see God's promise to us here? You know, Revelation 12, 14 says, tribulation is like the wilderness for the church. And so Jesus is promising to you, if you're faithful to him according to his word and you rely on him, he will feed your heart with satisfaction. It's invisible in the sense that it won't be seen in all your circumstances. Maybe the times are dark, but in your heart you will have what you need from the Lord himself. It reminds me of Psalm 23. You prepare a table for me. In the presence of my enemies. That's hidden manna. The satisfaction of Jesus Christ. According to his promises, he'll meet our need. And the white stone with a new name. Uh, scholars tell us that a lot of times white stones were used uh, as like a, a ticket of victory that would get you into the special occasion. Or the... Um, the amazing party, this white stone would be the past that gets you in. And so this stone would communicate acceptance and vindication and welcome. And the fact that it has this secret name on it that only Jesus knows, that's this idea of incredible intimacy with your knowledge of Christ and his knowledge of you that he would bring you all the way in. He doesn't keep you out on the corners all the way in to know him and who he is. It's the idea that he loves you deeply and welcomes you near. And honestly, I can't think of two better promises than these. That Jesus will say, I'll satisfy your heart and I'll bring you all the way into myself as my precious, precious bride. My precious, precious people. And you know, I think, I think this is what we're looking for when we're tempted with sexual immorality. Tell me you're not looking for satisfaction. 
Tell me you're not deeply desiring to be wanted, to be valued, to be named, to be significant, to be seen as beautiful. Tell me you're not longing for these things and that those don't drive you to look. And Jesus says, if you'll be faithful to me, if you'll trust me, I will meet these core needs in ways you could never dream. I'm the one whose face shines like the sun. I'm the one who satisfies with his goodness. What a promise from Christ. It'll be worth it to be faithful to him. It's always worth it to be faithful to him. No one who is faithful to him looks back and says, oh, what a mistake. No one. Everyone is thrilled who's faithful to him to the end, thrilled beyond belief by his goodness. So in conclusion, what do we do? Well, it's essential that we submit to the right authority, the word of the resurrected Jesus Christ, the word of God as revealed here in the Bible. And we must let that authority and that authority alone define our worship that we be satisfied in our Father in heaven through Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross by the power of the Holy Spirit. And then finally, we want to display our worship of him in the way we hold fast to his word no matter the cost and in the way we practice our sexuality in submission to his design for his glory. It's not easy. We need one another, but it's beautiful And as we look forward to what it all signifies to those who conquer, we will sit together at the marriage feast together with our Lord. Let's pray. Father, give us delight in your word. Satisfy us through your promises in your son and what he's done. Fill us with the power of the Holy Spirit that we might be faithful to you and your word no matter the cost knowing it will be worth it in the end. You're beautiful. You're worth it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.